Chapter 10 of Principles of Economics, Book 6, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Notes for Marshall, Principles of Economics, Book 6, Chapter 10. Note 104. The sleeping partner may be a village community, but recent investigations, especially those of Mr. Seaborn, have given cause for believing that the communities were not often free and ultimate owners of the land. For a summary of the controversy as to the part which the village community has played in the history of England. The reader is referred to the first chapter of Ashley's Economic History. Mention has already been made of the ways in which primitive forms of divided ownership of the land hindered progress. Note 105. The firm may be further enlarged by the introduction of an intermediary who collects payments from a number of cultivators and after deducting a certain share, hands them over to the head of the firm. He is not a middleman in the sense in which the word is used ordinarily in England. That is, he is not a subcontractor liable to be dismissed at the end of a definite period for which he has contracted to collect the payments. He is a partner in the firm, having rights on the land as real as those of the head partner, though it may be of inferior value. The case may be even more complex than this. There may be many intermediate holders between the actual cultivators and the person who holds direct from the state. The actual cultivators also vary greatly in the character of their interests, some having a right to sit at fixed rents and to be altogether exempt from enhancement, some to sit at rents which are enhanceable only under certain prescribed conditions, some being mere tenants from year to year. Note 106. Professor Maitland in the article on court rules in the Dictionary of Political Economy, observes that we shall never know how far the tenure of the medieval tenant was precarious until these documents have been examined. Note 107. Thus, Mr. Pusey's Committee of the House of Commons in 1848 reported that different usages have long prevailed in different counties and districts of the country, conferring a claim on an outgoing tenant for various operations of husbandry, that these local usages are imported into leases or agreements, unless the terms of the agreement expressly or by implication 
negates such a presumption that in certain parts of the country a modern usage has sprung up which confers a right on the outgoing tenant to be reimbursed certain expenses other than those above referred to that this usage appears to have grown out of improved and spirited systems of farming involving a large outlay of capital that these new usages have gradually grown into general acceptance in certain districts until they have ultimately become recognized there as the custom of the country many of them are now enforced by law see below and 10 note 108 thus the value of a service of a certain number of days work would depend partly on the promptness with which the laborer left his own hayfield when called to that of his landlord and on the energy he put into his work his own rights such as that of cutting wood or turf were elastic and so were those of his landlord which bound him to allow flocks of pigeons to devour his crops unmolested to grind his corn in the lord's mill and to pay tolls levied on the lord's bridges and his markets next the fines or presents or abwaps as they are called in india which the tenant might be called on to pay were more or less elastic not only in their amounts but in the occasions on which they were levied under the moguls the tenants in chief had often to pay a vast number of such imposts in addition to their nominally fixed share of the produce and they passed these on increased in weight and with additions of their own to the inferior tenants the british government has not levied them itself but it has not been able in spite of many efforts to protect the inferior tenants from them for instance in some parts of orissa sir w w hunter found that the tenants had to pay beside their customary rent 33 different seizes they paid whenever one of their children married they paid for leave to erect embankments to grow sugar cane to attend the festival of juggernaut etc see orissa 155 to 9 note 109 in india at the present time we see very various forms of tenure existing side by side sometimes under the same name and sometimes under different names there are places in which the rayats and the superior holders own between them the property in the land subject to definite dues to government and where the riot is safe not only from being ejected but also from being compelled by fear of violence 
to pay over to his superior holder more than that share of the producer's surplus, which custom strictly prescribes. In that case, the payment which he makes is, as has already been said, simply the handling over to the other partner in the firm of that share of the receipts of the firm, which under the unwritten deed of partnership belongs to him. It is not rent at all. This form of tenure, however, exists only in those, part, in those parts of Bengal, in which there have been no great recent dislocations of the people, and in which the police are sufficiently active and upright to prevent the superior holders from tyrannizing over the inferior. In the greater part of India, the cultivator holds directly from the government under a lease, the terms of which can be revised at intervals. And the principle on which those leases are arranged, especially in the northwest and northeast, where new land is being settled, is to adjust the annual payments due for it to the probable surplus produce of the land, after deducting the cultivator's necessaries and his little luxuries, according to the customary standard of the place, and on the supposition that he cultivates with the energy and skill that are normal in that place. Thus, as between man and man in the same place, the charge is of the nature of economic rent. But since unequal charges will be levied in two districts of equal fertility, of which one is cultivated by a vigorous and the other by a feeble population, its method of adjustment as between different districts is rather that of a tax than a rent. For taxes are supposed to be apportioned to the net income, which actually is earned, and rents to that, which would be earned by an individual of normal ability. A successful trader will pay on ten times as large an actual income, ten times as large a tax as his neighbor who lives in equally advantageous premises and pays equal rents. The whole history of India records little of that quiet stability which has come over the rural parts of England since war, famine and plague have ceased to visit us. Extensive movements seem to have been nearly always in progress, partly in consequence of the recurrence of famines. For as the statistical atlas of India shows, there are very few districts which have not been visited at least once by a severe famine during this century. Partly of the devastating wars which one set of conquerors after another has inflicted on the patient people, and partly of the rapidity with which the richest land reverts to a thick jungle. 
the land which has supported the largest population is that which, when deprived of its human inhabitants, most quickly provides shady harbors for wild beasts, for venomous snakes, and for malaria. These prevent the return of the refugees to their old homes and cause them often to wander far before they settle. When land has been depopulated, those who have the control over it, whether the government or private persons, offer very favorable terms in order to attract cultivators from elsewhere. This competition for tenants very much influences the relations of cultivators and superior holders for a long distance around them, and therefore, in addition to the changes of customary tenure, which though impalpable at any time, have been always going on, there have been in almost every place many epochs in which the continuity even of the former custom has been broken and keen competition has reigned supreme. These disturbing forces of war, famine and plague were frequent in medieval England, but their violence was less. And further, the rate of movement of nearly all changes in India has been greater than it would have been if the average period of a generation were as long as in the colder climate of England. Peace and prosperity, therefore, enable Indian populations to recover from their calamities more quickly. And the traditions which each generation holds of the doings of its fathers and grandfathers run back for a shorter time so that usages of comparatively recent growth are more easily believed to have the sanction of antiquity. Change can move faster without being recognized as change. Modern analysis may be applied to the contemporary conditions of land tenure in India and other Oriental countries. The evidence as to which we can examine and cross-examine in such a way as to throw light on the obscure and fragmentary records of medieval land tenures, which may indeed be examined, but cannot be cross-examined. There is, of course, great danger in applying modern methods to primitive conditions. It is easier to misapply them than to apply them rightly. But the assertion which has been sometimes made that they cannot be usefully applied at all appears to be based on a conception of the aims, methods and results of analysis which has little in common with that presented in this and other modern treatises. See a reply in the Economic Journal, September 1892. Note 110. The term metire applies properly only to cases in which the landlord's share of the produce is one half. 
but it is usually applied to all arrangements of this kind, whatever the landlord's share be. It must be distinguished from the stock lease system, in which the landlord provided part at least of the stock, but the tenant managed the farm entirely at his own risk, subject to a fixed annual payment to the landlord for land and stock. In medieval England, this system was much used, and the Metaya system appears not to have been unknown. See Rogers, Six Centuries of Work and Wages, Chapter 9, Note 111. In 1880, 74% of the farms of the United States were cultivated by their owners. 18% or more than two-thirds of the remainder were rented for a share of the produce, and only 8% were held on the English system. The largest proportion of farms that were cultivated by persons other than their owners were in the southern states. In some cases, the landowner, the farmer as he is called there, supplies not only horses and mules, but their feed. And in that case, the cultivator, who in France would be called not a metaya, but a metevale, is almost in the position of a hired laborer paid by a share of what he gets. As is, for instance, a hired fisherman whose pay is the value of a part of the catch. The tenant's share varies from one-third where the land is rich and the crops, such as to require little labor, to four-fifths where there is much labor and the landlord supplies little capital. There is much to be gained from a study of the many various plans on which the share contract is based. Note 112. The relations between publisher and author on the half-profit system resemble in many ways those between landlord and metaya. Note 113. This can be most clearly seen by aid of diagrams of the same kind as those used in Chapter 4, Subsection 3. A tenant's share curve would be drawn standing one-half, or one-third, or two-thirds, as high above OD as AC does. The area below that curve would represent the tenant's share, that above the landlord's. OH being, as before, the return required to renew remunerate the tenant for one dose. He will, if left to his own devices, not carry cultivation beyond the point at which the tenant's share curve cuts HC, and the landlord's will therefore be a less proportion of the returns to a slighter cultivation than under the English plan. 
Diagrams of this kind may be used to illustrate the way in which Ricardo's analysis of the causes that govern the producer's surplus from land applied to systems of tenure other than the English. A little further change will adapt them to such customs as those found in Persia, where land itself is of small value, and the harvest is divided into five parts, which are apportioned as follows, one part to each, one, land, two, water for irrigation, etc., three, seed, four, labor, five, bullocks. The landlord generally owns two, so he gets two-fifths of the harvest. Note 114. This is already done in America and in many parts of France, and some good judges think that the practice may be extended largely and infuse new life into what a little while ago was regarded as the decaying system of metallage. If worked out thoroughly, it will result in the cultivation being carried just about as far and affording the landlord the same income as he would have on the English plan for equally fertile and well-situated land equipped with the same capital and in a place in which the normal ability and enterprise of candidates for farms is the same. On the elasticity of metallage in France, see an article by Higgs and Lambelin in the Economic Journal, March 1894, and Leroy Beaulieu, Repartition de Riches, Chapter 4. Starting as in the last note, let the circulating capital supplied by the landlord be represented by the distance OK marked off along OD. Then if the landlord controls the amount OK freely and in his own interest and can bargain with his tenant as to the amount of labor he applies, it can be proved geometrically that he will so adjust it as to force the tenant to cultivate the land just as intensively as he would under the English tenure, and his share will then be the same as under it. If he cannot modify the amount, okay, but can still control the amount of the tenant's labor, then, with certain shapes of the produce curve, the cultivation will be more intensive than it would be on the English plan, but the landlord's share will be somewhat less. This paradoxical result has some scientific interest, but little practical importance. Note 115. The term Peasant proprietor is a very vague one. 
It includes many who by thrifty marriages have collected into one hand the results of several generations of hard work and patient saving. And in France, some of these were able to lend freely to the government after the great war with Germany. But the savings of the ordinary peasant are on a very small scale, and in three cases out of four, his land is starved for want of capital. He may have a little money hoarded or invested, but no good grounds have been shown for believing that he often has much. Note 116 It would seem that England gets more produce per acre of fertile land than even the Netherlands, though there is some doubt about it. The Netherlands have led the way for England in more parts of industrial enterprise than any other country has. And this enterprise has diffused itself from the thickly scattered towns over the whole land. But there is error in the common opinion that they support as dense a population as England does, and yet export on the balance a great deal of agricultural produce. For Belgium imports a great part of her food, and even Holland imports as much food as she exports, though her non-agricultural population is small. In France, farm crops and even potatoes are on the average only about half as heavy as in England proper, and France has only about half the weight of cattle and sheep in proportion to her area. On the other hand, the small cultivators of France excel in poultry and fruits and other light branches of production for which her superb climate is well suited. Note 117 For the long periods the landlord may be regarded as an active partner and the predominant partner in the business. For short periods, his place is rather that of the sleeping partner. On the part played by his enterprise, compare the Duke of Argyle's Unseen Foundations of Society, especially page 374. There is still bracket opens 1907 bracket closes considerable difference of opinion as to the extent to which the habits of the landlords combined with the existing system of tenure hinder the formation of new small holdings which might provide an intelligent laborer with an opportunity for starting an independent business of his own as easily as the artisan can start a retail shop and repairing business in metal or other goods. Note 119 The difficulty is even greater in small holdings. For the capitalist farmer does at all events measure the prime cost in terms of money. But the cultivator, working with his own hands, 
often puts into his land as much work as he feels able to do without estimating carefully its money value in relation to its product. Although peasant proprietors resemble the heads of other small businesses in their willingness to work harder than those whom they hire and for less reward, yet they differ from the small masters in manufacture in this, that they often do not hire extra labor even when it would pay them well to do so. If all that they and their family can do for their land is less than enough for it, it is generally undercultivated. If more, it is often cultivated beyond the remunerative limit. It is a common rule that those who give the time which is free from their main occupation to some other industry often regard their earnings in this last however low as an extra gain and they sometimes even work below what would be a starvation wage to those who depend on that industry for support this is especially true when the side industry is that of cultivating partly for the pleasure of doing it a small plot of land with imperfect appliances note one two zero c six two dot five and the references given there note one two one proteros english farming chapter six gives some instances of prolonged resistance to changes and adds that an act had to be passed in england as late as 1634 against ploinage by the tail note 122 see book 4 chapter 3 sections 5 and 6 note 123 Horsepower is dearer relatively to both steam power and hand power in England than in most other countries. England has taken the lead in the improvement of field steam machinery. The cheapness of horsepower tells generally on the side of moderate-sized farms versus very small ones, but the cheapness of steam power and motor power obtained from petrol, etc., tells on the side of very large firms, except insofar as the use of field steam machinery can be hired economically and at convenient times. Note 124. The experiment of working firms on a very large scale is difficult and expensive because it requires farm buildings and means of communication specially adapted to it and it may have to overcome a good deal of resistance from custom and sentiment not altogether of an unhealthy kind the risk also would be great for in such cases those who pioneer often fail though their route when well trodden 
may be found to be the easiest and best. And our knowledge on many disputed points would be much increased and valuable guidance gained for the future if some private persons or joint stock companies or cooperative associations would make a few cardinal, a few careful experiments of what have been called factory farms. On this plan, there would be a central set of buildings. Parenthesis opens. There might be more than one. Parenthesis close. From which roads and even light tramways extended in all directions. In these buildings, the recognized principles of factory management would be applied. Machinery would be specialized and economized. Waste of material would be avoided. Byproducts would be utilized. And above all, the best skill and managing power would be employed, but only for its proper work. Note 125. The interpretation of this term varies with local conditions and individual wants. On permanent pasture near a town or an industrial district, the advantages of small holdings are perhaps at their maximum and the disadvantages at their minimum. For small arable holdings, the land should not be light but strong, and the richer the better. And this is especially the case with holdings so small as to make much use of the spade. The small cultivator can often pay his rent most easily where the land is hilly and broken, because there he loses but little from his want of command of machinery. Note 126. They increase the number of people who are walking in the open air with their heads and their hands. They give to the agricultural laborer a stepping stone upwards, prevent him from being compelled to leave agriculture to find some scope for his ambition, and thus check the great evil of the continued flow of the ablest and bravest farmlands to the towns. They break the monotony of existence. They give a healthy change from indoor life. They offer scope for a variety of character and for the play of infancy and imagination in the arrangement of individual life. They afford a counter-attraction to the grosser and baser pleasures. They often enable a family to hold together that would otherwise have to separate. Under favorable conditions, they improve considerably the material condition of the worker, and they diminish the fretting as well as the positive loss caused by the inevitable interruptions of their ordinary work. The evidence before the Committee on Small Holdings, 1906, parenthesis open, C.D. 
3278 discusses very fully the advantages and disadvantages of ownership for smallholders, with apparently a balance of opinion against ownership. In 1904, there were in Great Britain 111,000 holdings between 1 and 5 acres, 232,000 between 5 and 50 acres, 150,000 between 50 and 300 acres, and 18,000 above 300 acres. Note 127. The Ricardian theory of rent ought not to bear the greater part of the blame that has been commonly thrown on it. For those mistakes which the English legislators made during the first half of this century in trying to force the English system of land tenure on India and Ireland. The theory concerns itself with the causes that determine the amount of the producer's surplus from land at any time, and no great harm was done when this surplus was regarded as the landlord's share. In a treatise written for the use of Englishmen in England. It was an error in jurisprudence and not in economics that caused our legislators to offer to the Bengal tax collector and Irish landlord facilities for taking to themselves the whole property of a cultivating firm, which consisted of tenant and landlord in the case of Ireland and in the case of Bengal, of the government and tenants of various grades, for the tax collector was in most cases not a true member of the firm, but only one of its servants. But wiser and juster notions are prevailing now in the government of India as well as of Ireland. Note 128 Compare Took and New Match, History of Prizes, Volume 6, Appendix 3. Note 129. Difficulties of this kind are practically solved by compromises which experience has justified and which are in accordance with the scientific interpretation of the term normal. If a local tenant showed extraordinary ability. The landlord would be taught grasping, who by threatening to import a stranger, tried to extort a higher rent than the normal local farmer could make the land pay. On the other hand, a farm being once vacant, the landlord would be taught to act reasonably if he imported a stranger who would set a good model to the district and who shared about equally with the landlord the extra net surplus due to his ability and skill, which though not strictly speaking exceptional, we are yet above the local standard. Note 
compare the action of settlement officers in India with regard to equally good land cultivated by energetic and unenergetic races, noticed in the footnotes on page 642. Note 130. Compare Nicholson, Tenant's Gain, Not Landlord's Loss, Chapter 10. Note 131. The Agricultural Holdings Act of 1883 enforced customs which Mr. Pusey's committee eulogized but did not propose to enforce. Many improvements are made partly at the expense of the landlord and partly at that of the tenant, the former supplying the materials and the latter the labor. In other cases, it is best that the landlord should be the real undertaker of the improvements, bearing the whole expense and risk and realizing the whole gain. The Act of 1900 recognized this, and partly for the sake of simplicity in working, it provided that compensation for some improvements can be claimed only if they have been made with the consent of the landlord. In the case of drainage notice of the tenant's wishes, must be served on the landlord, so that he may have the opportunity of himself undertaking the risks and reaping a share of the accruing benefits. In reference to manuring and some kind of repairs, etc., the tenant may act without consulting the landlord, merely taking the risk that his outlay would not be regarded by the arbitrator as calling for compensation. Under the Act of 1900, the arbitrator was to assign such compensation as would represent fairly the value of the improvement to an incoming tenant. After deduction for any part of that value, which might be due to evoking dormant inherent capabilities of the soil. But this deduction was struck out by the Act of 1906, the interest of the landlord being regarded as sufficiently secured by the provisions requiring his consent in some of those cases in which such dormant capabilities might be evoked, and by giving him an opportunity of taking the risks himself in the rest. Note 132. This matter is further discussed in Appendix G. End of chapter 10. Notes for Marshall.